Welcome back to another special episode of the Dispatch Podcast on Friday. I am joined this week by Declan Garvey. He is the editor of The Morning Dispatch, which I hope all of you are subscribing to. It is The Dispatch's incredible morning newsletter. But this week, we are joined by another newsletter author and one you have not heard from on this podcast yet. Scott Lincecum is the author of our Capitalism newsletter. And as he describes it, he will be your tour guide through the often impenetrable world of federal economic policy. Let's dive right in. Last week, we had Orrin Cass, the founder of American Compass, a new think tank that sort of seeks to move the conservative movement into a different direction, sort of the more populist, uh, uh, economic populist direction. And in that, he said that one of the, the shibboleths he wants to take on within the old conservative movement is what he refers to as free market fundamentalism. I know Jonah Goldberg uh, you know, likes to say that there is no free market fundamentalism in the conservative movement, but I will note that you have written for a publication called the Free Trade Bulletin at Cato, which which might be part of Oren's point. So I'm curious, uh, you listen to the podcast. Where do you think that American Compass uh, has an interesting role to play in sort of building new areas within the conservative movement? And where do you think, nope, the conservative movement can't go there? Sure. So I, I, I think that um, a focus on, uh, on family is, and a focus on workers uh, and individuals in, you know, in that sense, kind of a bottom-up approach to policy is, is great. Um, I, I have no problem with that. In fact, um, years ago, uh, there was this little burgeoning movement called uh, free market populism or libertarian populism. And the idea there was that um, that Republicans and conservatives need to refocus from kind of a corporatist, top-down approach, fully supply-side and cronyist approach to economic policy, and instead look at the policies that best benefit uh, workers and consumers and families at uh, kind of from the bottom up. Um, and so in that sense, you know, look, I, I think that that focus is fine. Um, and in fact, I think some of the policies that I've seen come out of there, um, whether again, it's, it's on, uh, family issues, um, removing some of the biases in the tax code against family formation, um, improving on kind of regular, improving regulatory burdens, um, that, that hit families hardest, uh, or, uh, some of the regulatory burdens. I think Oren's written on environmental regulation, stymieing um, in manufacturing. You know, look, all of that is is cool. Um, what where I really, really struggle is um, twofold. One is like you mentioned at the beginning, um, the idea that there is this pervasive libertarian free market fundamentalism in the GOP or in U.S. economic policy is uh, to, to laughable on its face. Um, that's really the only way to put it. Um, you know, I wrote a piece for uh, my newsletter at the Dispatch a while ago, looking at the quote-unquote libertarian domination of economic policy over the years. And um, if you like charts, I highly recommend it. There's about 25 of them, I think. Uh, it actually crashed 
the Substack uh, delivery. I remember um, Rachel that. was really yes. mad at me about um, I, I apologized. But look, the point is that um, and, whether and you're just looking really quick, yeah. listeners, if you don't like charts, Scott is not your guy. No, no, <laughs> I, I I'm pretty yeah. Anti chartism, I think, is is a problem in society. Uh, David French. <laughs> Uh, if you like you, to uh, to click through at the bottom of an email to say click here to read more instead of reading the full newsletter in your e- inbox, capitalism is look, the one for you. If a picture is worth a thousand words, a chart is worth a million, and that is, <laughs> you know, I really uh, that's kind of my mantra. Anyway, so if you if you go and look at whether it is government spending, uh, regulatory burdens, the growth of the actual government itself, um, and then even on the supposedly dogmatic libertarian issues like immigration and trade, there is just really little overall um, to to support the idea that libertarians have been running Washington for years. So that's the first thing that really, I think, sticks in my craw a bit, is that, look, having spent now uh, 20, almost 25 years doing uh, trade and economic policy in D.C., I can tell you that we are the last people that uh, congressional staffers want to hear from when it comes to actually fixing American trade policy and making it freer as, as we'd like. So I think but that's, yeah, go ahead. Let me, let me give you some Orin Cass pushback. What I think okay. he would say is, okay, but when someone, when you ask a random voter, uh, what does the Republican party stand for? What does the conservative movement stand for? What they're going to tell you, at least in that top three, if we were on family feud and having to like hit our buzzer, tax cuts. And in fact, the only major piece of legislation that happened during the Trump administration was tax cuts. And you go back to the Bush administration, tax cuts, the things that Republicans were running on, tax cuts. Now we can talk about whether those tax cuts were for the wealthy or for the middle class or whatever else. But the fact that that clearly in most Americans' minds is a top three Republican issue, um, doesn't that kind of undermine your point that like, no, this hasn't been a big part of, of Republican dogma? No, I I don't really think it does because it's one point out of a lot of points. Um, and first of all, you know, uh, we need to separate. I think what libertarians are talking about from what Republicans are talking about. I mean, I think that's a that's a one of the big problems. Um, but beyond that is that um, you can look at say top line marginal tax rates. Um, that have gone down. But then you can actually get into the weeds of corporate tax policy um, and see that these things are are not even close to free market, whether we're talking about R&D tax credits or child tax credits or whether these are good and bad. These are not um, kind of Republican or excuse me, these are not simple flat rates that are what I would say truly free market. Um, and, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of studies that show that, that over the years that top tax rates don't really matter in terms of effective tax burden, that it's all of those details that really matter. And over the years, Republicans and Democrats have been truly fantastic at using the arcania of tax policy to deliver favors to their preferred interest groups, whether it is steel makers or steel workers, it doesn't matter. Over the years, there is tons of that stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So yeah, you know, and this, and I'll lose, I'll use trade too, because I think that, that the American compass folks will say, ah, 
trade liberalization has been just overwhelming over the last 30 years because if you look at tariff rates, they've gone down. Well, yeah, tariff rates have gone down, but any trade expert will tell you that tariff rates are a tiny sliver of trade policy. And then when you look at other areas of trade policy, like, for example, anti-dumping measures, which will impose massive duties on certain products, or if you look at non-tariff, non-duty barriers, if you look at subsidies and uh, regulatory trade barriers, these things have gone through the roof. And in fact, the United States ranks as one of the highest users of these non-tariff measures measures in the world. Um, and so that, again, gets to where at the top line, you could say, ah, oh, free market fundamentalism. But for those of us who actually work in the weeds on these issues, it's just not true. Um, and, and that's, I think, what really, uh, again, it, it bugs. Um, but the other issue is that, you know, there, there is, and this is what I wrote about just this week, um, there is a really strong case for having a, what I would call, free market default position. To say, look, uh, market uh, interventions by the government in the market are appropriate, but you really got to prove your case. And why do you need to prove your case? Well, because we have decades upon decades and boatloads of research showing that freer markets are better. They are better for individual incomes. They are better for quality of life. They are better for economic growth. All of these things that are interconnected. And there's a lot of academic work showing that these are not merely correlations, that there's a lot of causation there. In other words, freer markets cause better outcomes. And for all income distributions. This is not just the rich getting richer, richer and the poor getting poorer. This is the rising tides lifting all boats, blah, blah, blah. And so again, and, and what, what I struggle with, I really struggle with is that when you read op-ed after op-ed that throws out this market, free market fundamentalism pejorative, they don't actually then say, well, this is why it's free market fundamentalism. This is why this, here we have a market failure, uh, whether it's for family policy or trade policy, whatever. Um, and we here and, and government, this policy will actually make things better. It is simply, uh, this is a, we, here's a problem. Um, and here's what I propose to solve. And oh, by the way, my critics are fundamentalists. And that's the end of the debate. And as I wrote about, that's just not simply Simply, if you have a presumption of economic liberty, as I do, and as I think we should have, you need a, there is a high burden of proof to surmount that. And while there are exceptions, I think air pollution is a great example where there are major negative externalities. It has been proven to be a problem. Government regulation is indeed necessary there. Public health, I mean, we're in the middle of a public health crisis. I don't think you'd find a lot of libertarians really pushing back on that. Um, but at the same time, um, when you get out of some of these areas, yeah, prove your case, make your point. You can't just simply point at a number, for example, the manufacturing sector's declining share of GDP and go, aha, ergo, we need industrial policy. Well, that's just not how it works. Um, and, you know, I wrote a whole paper showing why that specific statistic doesn't work. Um, and doesn't show us much. Um, and, and that, like I said, I think that's, that's a big problem, um, particularly as the exceptions to free market fundamentalism uh, continue to multiply. I mean, it's now, it's not just trade, it's not just immigration, it's 
uh, corporate governance, it's antitrust, it's uh, family policy. Uh, the list keeps getting bigger every day. And at some point, the exceptions to those free marketers uh, swallow the rule. I, I think this is the point that you're getting that at, at the end there. But I think the, the free market fundamentalism pejorative, as, as you say, in some ways is indicative of a broader uh, problem with our, our politics in that everybody in the arena thinks that they're losing. And, and so it's, you know, social conservatives think that liberal progressives are running everything. Meanwhile, liberal progressives think that social conservatives control the Supreme Court and they can and, 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 and all these state legislatures and things like that. Um, I think in, in terms of the, the American compass or in cast line of thinking, um, you know, the, these accusations that libertarians have been running everything. I think the libertarians probably have the best case to make that that they are losing on all the time. And so, um, you know, who from a from a political perspective, uh, who do you think best represents where you want to see the Republican Party go? We asked the same question to Orrin Cass, and he had lots of answers with Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and and Tom Cotton. At, who Who is the libertarian version of that? I know we had, you know, Pat Toomey is a pretty much the closest you get to an economic libertarian. He's retiring in two years. So where do you see hope kind of within within uh, modern politics? Yeah, I mean, I think to me is where where my mind immediately goes. Um, you know, here's a guy, and and by the way, Pat Toomey gets zero credit. Here's a guy who runs on a very free market uh, platform and has won in Pennsylvania of all places. You know, here, this is the big, oh, the Rust Belt. We need, you know, we have to get this blue collar workers. We need Pennsylvania. It's this linchpin state. Here's Pat Toomey winning, winning it on a uh, a very free market message, um, and uh, and he he's never mentioned in the discourse. Um, oh look, other guys. I I think that Mike Lee mostly uh, I agree with. I think Mike Lee has a very principled approach to politics for the most part. Um, I think an, another guy that I tend to think is pretty good on these issues um, would be uh, Ben Sass. Um, you know, but 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 look, there's no doubt that as a a libertarian, I'm not going to be thrilled with with really anybody, right? Um, but I accept my place in the wilderness. Um, you know, I I'm unlike you know Jonah. He's just kind of he's in the remnant now. Um, look, I was born in the remnant. I was molded <laughs> by the remnant. Um, so, you know, to, sorry to quote Bain, um, the, uh, and, and, and so I'm never going to be really psyched. I mean, and, and then the folks that claim to be libertarians like Rand Paul are, are, uh, just a massive disappointment. Um, and so, uh, but I think the other thing is that, um, I don't think libertarians would say that we're quote unquote losing. Uh, I think that, you know, the way that I would put it is that the American system is messy and it represents a mishmash of a lot of different views and positions. Uh, a lot of them I dislike, a few of them I like. Occasionally libertarians win on some issues. I do think that kind of uh, free marketers or whatever have notched some victories on trade policy along with a lot of losses um, and on, you know, occasionally on immigration policy as well. Um, but uh, I, at the same time, recognizing that mixed in with those wins are a whole lot of losses and that that's where as serious policy folks, we want to focus. Um, and, and that, again, I think it gets back to the idea that 
Um, a lot of the talk on the populist right stays at 30,000 feet, whereas when you get into the weeds of these issues, you're going to find a lot of experts just kind of furling their brow and saying, well, that's not really how it is for either uh, for better or worse. Um, and that that is frustrating. Let's move to the $1.9 trillion we <laughs> all just agreed to spend right. as taxpayers. Speaking of libertarianism. <laughs> Speaking of just hardcore libertarian policy, I don't think we have time in the next several years to name all the things that you probably don't like in that bill. But where are some areas in that bill, maybe you tweak them perhaps, but that you think given our current situation, pandemic, et cetera, where you think that stimulus could help the economy over the next few months? Sure. Um, I think the two areas that uh, I have absolutely no problems with are going to be the direct public health measures. So obviously vaccines, but also COVID mitigation. So, you know, public health is a perfectly legitimate uh, role for government. Uh, I think even uh, almost all libertarians even would agree that there is a role for government in public health. Um, it gets back to, again, market failures, externalities, all that kind of stuff, right? And even constitutional authorities in that. It's all good. Um, also, I think that uh, direct cash transfers to individuals. I'm a, I'm a fan of, of cash transfers generally as a form of uh, economic support. Um, the only problem, of course, is that instead of helping the 10 to 12 million Americans who are truly struggling because of the pandemic, um, out of work, uh, unable to get a new job, whatever it is, um, this just is, goes so far beyond it. I mean, even with the little tweaks they made, um, you're talking about sending not just a thousand bucks, but you're talking about sending potentially 10,000 or more dollars to families that are have have suffered no financial hardship. Absolutely zero financial hardship. Didn't lose a job, they work from home remotely. Um ha had, you know, look, they had some tough issues with schools not being an open stuff, but in general in terms of financial hardship, um didn't suffer at all and they're going to get you know uh 10 grand in their bank account or or whatever um and that that really i think is unfortunate because it takes what what is a legitimate issue and then just corrupts it um and and goes far beyond it as an economist though do you think that those types of checks actually do have trickle effects as stimulus in the economy are you worried about inflation like nerd out with me here in a second on like actually, you know, doing some econ 101 on what this will do as it hits various parts of our economy, like a little pinball machine. Yeah. And so if it, if it had been targeted stimulus for folks who need it, um, I wouldn't worry about uh, any of those issues at all. Um, it would be a much, much smaller bill. I mean, you're talking, you know, uh, only a few hundred billion. It's crazy how we've gotten to this point. But um but unfortunately, it's it's 1.9 trillion, and I do think that <clears throat> there is the potential for the economy to overheat. Um, and and what I mean is, it's really important to understand first of all where we are 
in the COVID quote unquote recession and recovery. Um, I think one of the worst talking points by Democrats and the media over the last week or so is that, aha, Republicans voted for the CARES Act. So how could they oppose this thing, right? Well, you know, when the CARES Act was implemented, the United States was in one of the deepest recessions ever. Um, there was absolute uncertainty about what was coming next. COVID was ravaging uh, certain cities. Econo entire states were closed down, subject to stay-at-home orders and the rest. Um, the economy is simply not there anymore. Um, look, and it's thank goodness, right? Um, you know, people have have saved. A, there's a lot of personal savings sitting on the sideline, and it's not, by the way, um, uh, it's just the rich. Uh, there was an analysis, I think, by Citibank that showed that a lot of uh, lower income and middle class folks have also saved a lot, which is, of course, what happens when you shut down the entire service industry or most of it. Um, and uh, that is sitting on the sidelines waiting to go. Um, moreover, uh, manufacturing is just rip-roaring right now because everybody is buying goods, uh, whether it's a refrigerator for your house or lumber because you're building a treehouse in your backyard or whatever. Um, uh, that is all uh, going nuts. And, uh, and the blue-collar jobs in general are having a major rebound because a lot of the jobs we think of as quote unquote blue collar, whether it's construction or manufacturing or warehouse jobs, one of my favorite kind of growing categories of jobs um, that are quite well compensated and are just exploding for obvious reasons um, for e-commerce and the rest. Um, all of that is on the up. And when you combine that all together, um, the economy pre two trillion was and expected to grow at around, say, 5% or so. And most, uh, the CBO, for example, said that the, quote, output, put, output gap, so that's the difference between where our GDP is and where it should be, was looking at around $400, $500 dollars, uh, give or take. Um, what, well, the problem is that when you put $2 trillion into the economy, when your output gap is only $500 billion, um, you can see the, where the problems arise. And so even if the CBO undershot, let's say they, they, that output gap's actually $800 billion or whatever, um, you're still doubling uh, what's needed to get the economy back to uh, what we think is uh, full strength. Um, well, that creates pressures. Um, it will create pressures in the labor market. It will create pressures in assets. Uh, housing in particular, because you have a lot of dollars chasing goods. Um, and that's the other thing, by the way, our money supply, just the amount of dollars sloshing around the economy is way, way up, unlike how it was in the Great Recession. So when you have all these dollars chasing a limited amount of goods and services, that leads to price increases. Now, will this cause hyperinflation? No, that's dumb. Um, will it maybe cause inflationary pressures that that start to make the Fed nervous, that get above, say, 2.5%, start getting to 3% inflation? Well, maybe. And in fact, a lot of reasonable lefties like Larry Summers, uh, Olivier Blanchard, former IMF chief economist, um, 
Even Jason Furman, who supported the stimulus, have said, look, this is a risk. It is a risk that things get frothy. And if that happens, well, what the Fed will be perhaps forced to act. And the Fed has said, we're not going to mind if there's a little like two and a half percent inflation. But again, if it ticks up a little more, if things get a little scary, um, then the Fed will have to act, raise rates that can cause the economy to basically screech to a halt, causing another recession. Um, But even if that doesn't happen, I I would say that that's probably not your, your most likely scenario. Even if that doesn't happen, I think there's undoubtedly a significant risk of a uh, of asset bubbles. Um, you know, there are some crazy things in the news right now. Uh, a JPEG just the other day sold for $70 million or something crazy. Uh, a pair of virtual sneakers, virtual sneakers just sold for like $300,000. Um, and I mentioned housing uh, manufacturing is under massive pressure right now uh, because, oh, by the way, uh, those wonderful populist steel tariffs are in place and manufacturers can't get steel. Um, so steel, steel prices have skyrocketed. Yay, populism. Um, and <laughs> But those types of things will create pressures. They might not create inflation because inflation is an economy-wide phenomenon. It also relies on what's going on in global markets and developing countries and all that kind of thing stuff. But could we see asset bubbles and could those bubbles pop causing ripple effects throughout the economy? Well, that strikes me as a more legitimate risk. Again, might not happen, um, but it's something that nobody's even talking about. And then the last thing I would note, and this is really wonky and I apologize, is um, is there is an, a real risk of developing countries having significant problems with their debt. Because a lot of developing countries buy dollar-denominated debt. So the debt they have is in dollars. Um, and they pay uh, interest on that debt based on kind of what the dollar is doing. Well, if all of a sudden the U.S. dollar starts strengthening because of all this inflationary pressure and all this frothiness I'm talking about, suddenly those developing country debts get more serious. Um, and you have the threat of having what we call an emerging market debt crisis, which, uh, given a global economy, reverberates back back to us. Um, and so those are the types of risks that are out there. And it, it's amazing. Nobody seems to really care. It's all just, hey, free money. First, I would just want to say that I th- hope we all can agree that uh, baseball cards are not one of those asset bubbles. <laughs> and, and then that those are, are going to continue to go to the moon uh, as they have for the past year as someone who's dabbled a bit in, in that market. Um, but, I have, a, uh, I have a, a couple boxes full if you want to root through them. All right. I, <laughs> I, I, would, I would take you up on that. From um, the late 80s. Oh, the junk wax era. Okay. Yeah. Declan, people are going to think we pay you in like actual peanuts if you're digging through Scott's baseball card collection to try to make ends meet, it's not good. You know, it, uh, it making ends meet is a loose, a loose term. <laughs> and um, it's not true folks. We pay him in frozen pizzas, <laughs> frozen mini corn dogs. If you, if you read the dispatch, <laughs> uh, the morning newsletter, but, um, in, in terms of some of some of this frothiness that you talked about, uh, we, we obviously just pumped two trillion dollars in, into the economy, <laughs> and it and it sounds like we're not going to be done. <laughs> we're now right, move, right. moving towards a, a infrastructure package of of some kind that has been promised every week, dating back to twenty seventeen, but uh, might actually 
happened now that uh, now that their dynamics in Congress have shifted a little bit. Um, some centrist Democrats have uh, come out saying that they that they're interested in doing a, a multi trillion dollar infrastructure infrastructure package, but that this one this one should be paid for. <laughs> it's that this one uh, can't entirely be defi- deficit financed. So, what what are your thoughts about um, how all of this could be compounded by? another couple trillion dollars uh, that may or may not, um, you know, come with some tax increases or, or things like that. Um, how, how will that affect some of these macroeconomic trends? Yeah, no, to the look. And, and I think the other thing to note that I think I hadn't noted already is that we we had already put three, four trillion of additional stimulus into the economy in the last year. So in act, actually less than a year. I saw some, CARES some Act analysis. Was, I think, in, in, I saw some analysis say that if all the stimulus money was just direct checks, every taxpayer could have gotten over forty thousand dollars <laughs> in terms of. Yeah, yes. it's it's so. a mind. It's really mind boggling numbers we're dealing with, um, and and you know I think that um, conservatives and libertarians, to their uh, discredit, over over the last say twenty years, have been a little too um, conscious, too much of a deficit hawk. Right. Um, but we really are getting into crazy unchartered territory. And yeah, and then we're going to add another, let's say half of another two trillion is paid for with uh, tax increases or whatever. Um, yeah. So that's even more pressure. Um, now, I guess the bright side is that uh, if the uh, 2009 stimulus package is any indication. Uh, shovel ready does not actually mean shovel ready. And so it might take a while for those funds to actually get injected to the economy. So yay, which by the way, I, I need to note, um, uh, economists on the left who have been saying, no, two trillion's fine, no, another trillion is fine, are essentially doing that by admitting that the multiplier, so the bang for our every, the the amount of economic activity generated by each tax dollar, tax dollar spent is they're saying, no, no, it's fine because the, the, uh, the multiplier is really low. So it's like a 0.5, which means that for every dollar we're spending, we're only getting 50 cents of economic activity, which again, strikes me as a very, very bad deal, particularly as the economy was, was always already growing. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a, uh, it's a real risk that nobody seems to care. And, and part of that is because, again, to our, our side's discredit, um, in 2009, 2010, there were a lot of folks on the, on the right saying a lot of crazy things about inflation. And some of that was, I think, backed up by some economics. Some of it was just hysteria. But the, the truth is that we've learned a lot about um, inflation and how, how I think global economics, kind of globalization has changed the inflation picture. It really requires a lot more thinking about um, you know, what other countries are doing and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but at some point, this is going to matter. Um, and particularly when all of the spending is not paired with reforms of any other programs. Um, you know, the big problem with our long-term debt situation is not stimulus checks. Those are one-off deals. The big problem is that, you know, all of our entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the rest, haven't been reformed. And there's nobody even thinking of reforming them going forward. Um, and in fact, we're just, you know, with the Democrats are putting in new entitlements. They want the new child tax credit to be 
fully refundable and made permanent. Well, there's another trillion dollars over 10 years. Um, you know, they want Obamacare subsidies to be increased. We're going to keep doing this. Um, that's, I think, the bigger threat um, for the debt. You know, it's, at some point, the thing about debt problems is that they're not a problem until they are. Um, that everything goes fine, and then suddenly it doesn't, and then by the time it doesn't, you're screwed. There's no like pulling back from there. And uh, everybody seems to think that hey, we're the United States, we're the safe haven for for currency, um, we're good on our debts, and nobody, and we so we can run these perpetually increasing uh, debt burdens. And I mean, uh, you know, that that strikes me as um, a, a dumb gamble. And and so I mean, if you hear some people on the left in, in recent weeks, as we've as we've been passing a lot of this um, through Congress, they they point back to as you mentioned these you know ah, conservatives and and debt hawks have been talking about inflation for thirty years and it's never come. Where is it? And and you and it, we we got some hard numbers on that this week. The consumer price index uh, rose 0.4 percent in February year over year. It's 1.7 percent. So even after $4 trillion last year um, injected into the economy. It's not showing up yet. Uh, what do you, why are they wrong? Why, why is this not a boy who cried wolf situation? Right. So, so to be clear, I don't know if they're right or wrong. I think it's just, uh, it, it's essential to, uh, to be realistic about the risks, um, first of all. But second of all is the $4 trillion was injected to an economy that was shut down. That was, and not just shut down forcibly in terms of lockdowns. It was shut down in terms of uncertainty. Consumers, American families were freaked out about the future. And that causes, uh, inevitably, um, a, a dampening effect on consumption and economic activity. Businesses were freaked out about whether, um, you know, what was coming next, right, for, for COVID. Um, and so they weren't investing or they were, they were pulling back on certain investments. Meanwhile, there were these seismic shifts in things like remote work and urbanization and all housing and all these types of things that again injects more uncertainty into the market and that that again restrains the kind of inflationary pressures or the the pressures that that 4 trillion can have well let's now fast forward to today right um we're seeing we 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 already talked about all that savings being uh being sitting on the sidelines waiting to go. Um, but the biggest thing is the vaccines, right? You know, I'm a big vaccine cheerleader. You guys, you probably know that if you're on Twitter for two seconds, you're, you're aware of it or at read any of my columns. Um, but the fact is these vaccines are miracle drugs, man. They are, they are proving to not just kill the virus or protect you from getting sick. They're also um, d- uh, preventing transmission in most cases. So you can't give it to other people. They are also already effective against these scary variants we keep hearing about. Um, and to the Biden administration's credit, uh, to state government's credit, we seem to have gotten the kind of distribution bottlenecks under control. And the and more supply is coming online. Let's hear it for multinational pharmaceutical supply chains and big pharma. Yay! <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, Johnson & Johnson, now Novavax, AstraZeneca, 
All of these guys are cranking out vaccine and all of that is coming online. It is getting jabbed into our arms. Uh, hopefully everybody get out there, get vaccinated. And, um, and that is going to really unleash a lot of these restrained economic forces I just talked about as we reopen. As I mentioned in one of my newsletters, there's a guy who has uh, proven to be the most accurate, quote, forecaster on re economic reopening and on COVID, uh, whether it's infections, hospitalizations, deaths, or again, um, herd immunity. And he says, June or July, we're, we're wide open, man. It's good to go. Um, regardless of President Biden's, uh, you know, masked July 4th pr pronouncement, which is just silly. Um, uh, we're, things should be really looking pretty great in, say, May. Um, and, and so we, we should, I think, um, uh, expect a, a really big kick in the pants in the economy. I mean, now the economic projections for GDP growth for this year are sitting at like 7%. I think even that might be low. I mean, I'm, you know, predictions are, are worth the napkin you make them on. Um, but there's a lot of upside for the U.S. economy, um, and there will be a lot of upside for the global economy as uh, vaccine distribution in in increases abroad, too. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, I have a multiple choice question for you. When we look back at the pandemic, which of these five things will have turned out to be the most impactful on the United States? And I'm taking, uh, taking off your economist hat and putting on your sort of social scientist economist hat here, because some of these are not pure economic, but all of them will have a huge economic effect in the United States. Uh, one, debt. Two, birth rates. Three, the uh, decimation of the service sector and the increasing reliance on Amazon, you know, to get us everything and Amazon-like stuff. Uh, four, the work from home educational political divide, and five, public school closures. Hmm. Uh, wait, what was the second one again? Sorry. <laughs> I'll I, go through I, them quickly. Like, right, I should have written these down. No, you're from, uh, debt, service sector, birth rates, political divide, schools. Um, it's it's either birth rate or political divide. Um, because I, I think the others are not, um, I, I think the others are, there's big question marks. Quite frankly, I'm a big fan of Amazon. I think that's a bit overblown. Um, there was a stat I, I tossed out on Twitter the other day. Still in the pandemic, e-commerce is only 14% of all uh, service transactions. We still are buying a lot of stuff in person. Now, a lot of that is like cars and groceries and the rest, but, but we're not, I mean, we're not all just Amazon siloed folks. Um, and there's a lot of good research that shows that Amazon, uh, can actually support niche 
businesses and brick and mortar businesses too. So uh, that that one's out. Um, and I, I mentioned debt is a, a tricky one that that is a is a crapshoot. Um, I think school closures um, is hard because it's really difficult to predict whether these are long term. Uh, changes to how Americans feel about public schooling and whether the harms that our kids have had by being out of school are going to be long-term. I mean, clearly their problems now, um, are they going to be long-term? Um, the other ones I think are a bigger issue. Are, are we, is the, the decline, I mean, look, we've had a long-term decline in birth rates. That's a problem, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, First of all, kids are awesome. I encourage everyone out there to have babies, uh, preferably uh, as part of a loving uh, a relationship. Um, but the uh, the but so that's really important, and we've seen declining birth rates in the United States for a long time. Now, some of this is just economic development as countries get richer, and we are very rich, contrary to the pessimistic reporting out there. Um, there, you're going to have fewer babies, uh, but uh, there is a concern. Um, and, and now it's dropped even more and that's, that's, um, will that be permanent? I don't know. I mean, I think there's a alternative argument that if the U S economy really does boom, if we have this kind of roaring twenties, uh, coincidentally a century later, um, uh, we, everybody has a lot more babies. Um, so that, I don't know the work from home political divide is I think a much more enduring issue. Um, we have a really serious uh, split in the country between, um, you know, uh, what I would call educated suburbanite or urbanite elites, and they're not elite. I mean, because I, look, I live around a lot of these people. I, I probably am one of these people. I'm, I'm not elite in any sort of actual uh, legitimate sense. I mean, you know. No, uh, it, it maybe nachos aside, um, and uh, but but look, there is a, a real divide between those folks um, who experienced very little harm and and disruption in the pandemic, and then you know again, kind of blue collar. I, I hate to call it Trump voters, but you know, there's just a there's just a a cultural and economic divide that has been. Uh, expanded in the era of Trumpism and by the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, this miraculous technology that has allowed us to all, or not all, but allowed a lot of folks to uh, work from wherever and uh, unplug um, from kind of the traditional workplace is, I mean, it's awesome, but it's not shared by everyone. And I think that will have uh, significant implications, as again will just the general uh, trends that that the 2020 election showed. I mean, you know, I live in classic suburbia here in North Carolina. Um, I live around a lot of folks who 10 years ago voted Republican. Um, these are families that are upper middle class, kind of conservative, but not super conservative. Uh, they go to church, but not every week. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but tend to vote Republican on economic issues. And I can tell you, uh, almost uniformly, these folks were Biden voters. Um, and again, I'm in, I'm in North Carolina. I'm not, um, and you know, it is Raleigh, so we're pretty lib here, but still, um, the, the same goes for some of the other places from my friends in Atlanta, um, some of these other kind of Southern suburban areas that, 
um, that were traditional Republican strongholds are going uh, to Democrats. And that divide is, I think, it's a educational, cultural divide that seems to only be increasing. I think it'll increase even more. I think it has really significant implications for for our politics and our policy, none of them great. Um, you know, I'm obviously not a fan of where I think the Republican Party is headed, but Republican Party is transactional fan service, uh, as political parties are, and that's what they're um, what the voters are wanting. And without a countervailing force uh, in the Republican Party, kind of pushing back on some of that, it's just going to get more concentrated. So one of one of the options in, in Sarah's multiple choice there, um, or, or that was not in Sarah's multiple choice there, was uh, something that I think was already beginning to happen even before the pandemic, but has really exacerbated in in the past twelve months, and that's the issue of supply chain and yeah. um, and sourcing of. Uh, yes, this is something that now we're now we're talking. I, for those who can't see, I scooted up to the mic yes. to get ready. We, we for waited this one. until we're forty-five minutes in, so right, we don't want to yeah. scare anybody away right away. But um, <laughs> this, this is fair. This fair. is uh, this is something that uh, I didn't know I would be interested in, and I've become incredibly interested in, and obviously something that uh, is very near and dear to your heart. Um, so, talk a little bit about uh, your recent column. Uh, I think you touched on it this week, and then, but also uh, last week, in, in in more depth in your capitalism newsletter. Um, and and uh, I just wrote a piece on semiconductors, so that's what I kind of. So, why don't we use that as an example? Because my knowledge doesn't go too far beyond that. But perfect, um, perfect. It, it it kind of exemplifies, I think, an issue and a split that we're seeing between these industrial policy, uh, more populist folks and and the free marketers on on this stuff. And so kind of the just a, a brief overview and correct me if if any of this is incorrect, but there is currently a semiconductor shortage um kind of economy globally uh in part because of uh incorrect assumptions about when certain markets would bounce back and and order flow and things like that. Um it has led a a bipartisan group of of lawmakers here in Washington to Call on the government to subsidize manufacturing domestically. Um, there's a, there's some studies out there that show I believe the United States uh, is responsible for about 12 percent of semiconductor manufacturing right now. Oh, they love um, that stat. They love it. <laughs> um, and then uh, Taiwan, uh, of of all places, is is kind of uh, a behemoth in this in this space. And so um, as China gets more aggressive, some of these folks are are worrying what happens if China decides to roll into Taiwan and uh, uh, kind of annex this, this semiconductor production that the entire world is is um, reliant on. Shouldn't we have our own alternative to to stand this up? And so you push back on some of that thinking. Uh, what yes. what are what are your biggest concerns there? Okay, so let's let's uh, big picture it first for for those who haven't fallen asleep already um, out there. <laughs> um, no, and that's not to you, Declan. That's a definitely a shot at myself and this and the subject matter. Um, but so look, um, the and before the pandemic, it was all about China, the supply chain debate. Um, but then the pandemic happened, and our shelves got emptied, and. Uh, the supply chains went haywire because that's what a global pandemic does. It affects supply and demand in ways that are so unexpected, shutting down entire economies, causing massive changes to consumption patterns. Um, you're inevitably going to have a bunch of, of supply chain problems, whether it's domestic or uh, global. And again, people see it with their eyes. They go to their grocery stores and they get 
freaked out that they can't get toilet paper or the toilet paper they get is that really rough, thin stuff that's just awful. Um, and and they and that's a problem, right? And and of course, politicians sensing voter anxiety. Well, they got a their perfect opportunity to assuage that voter anxiety, right? It's a again transactional fan service. Um, so there is uh, some truth to some of the political uh, concern about supply chains. Uh, it is undoubtedly correct that participation in the global economy exposes uh, the United States to shocks. We call them economic shocks. That's the term. Um, that uh, you kind of import them. Whether it's a supply or demand shock, your country could be totally fine. But if if a major supplier country has a, let's just say, earthquake that shuts down production, well, guess what? You're on the hook. There's undoubtedly that you can import shocks. Um, however, the the two things that are unmentioned there is that uh, domestic shocks raise their own risks. So you can't just simply reshore all your production. Because if you have a domestic shock, let's say, for example, and I'll just use a crazy hypothetical, like a massive ice storm in Houston. <laughs> I mean, who would ever think that would happen, right? Ever. Well, that never. Sh- That'd be crazy. Never happen. Um, well, that shuts down your domestic production and you're in the exact same boat. So the economics literature says pretty clearly that you want a diverse you want supply chain diversity and flexibility. You want to have uh, some at home, some abroad, and and the market is pretty good, not perfect at at working this stuff out. So that's kind of your. Sorry, go ahead. Do you have a nope. something? No. Nope. Oh, okay. No. Oh, yeah, I think you were yawning. That was no, it. It, it wasn't was a yawn. yawning. No. <laughs> not a, when it comes. I saw to her mouth chains. open, folks. Look. Supply chains are no Carter Baker Commission, but actually, <laughs> this is the kind of economics I'm here for. Good. We, good. We, we can well, see so, open rates on um, newsletters and, and last week's semiconductor focused edition. Oof. Best, yeah. best we've ever seen. Awesome. 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 So, um, so look, there again, there's some, there's some truth, but it needs to be broadened out. And certainly in the context of China and in the context of the pandemic, um, there are concerns about um, when the supply chains break down, whether China is too big, too much of a supplier. For example, um, you'll hear a stat that's wrong, by the way, but you hear a stat that China supplies 90% of our uh, generic drugs. Um, if that were true, if 90% of American generic drug consumption did come from China, yeah, that raises the exact same sole supplier risks I just mentioned. Okay. Uh, but here's where we, where we really need to, to understand a couple of things. And this, I think, goes actually back. This is a really nice dovetail to the beginning of our conversation about identifying real market failures and government solutions to them. Okay. So um, what our supply chain interventionists don't mention is uh, a few things. First is that in almost all of the areas and all of the goods that we uh, think about right now when it comes to supply chains, pharmaceuticals, semiconductors, medical goods, um, the list goes on. We actually have a, a large U.S. domestic manufacturing industry. 
Um, I, I, you know, it's always bugs me that we have these Pfizer vaccines getting cranked out in massive doses, but yet we still hear about pharmaceutical, a lack of pharmaceutical manufacturing. You know, that's a crisis, right? Um, second, um, immediately after the pandemic hit, multinational corporations and their poor, stressed out logistics managers were working to fix some of these supply chain problems and working to adapt their supply chains. Whether that means to have more diverse suppliers, whether it means carrying more inventories, they were doing all of this instantly because look that happens you 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 know you you think you have one business strategy and say a lean inventory system you realize ah, you know what that's not great um and so uh we're going to we're going to change it um the other thing that is never really mentioned is that the united states government does have authority under current law to patch some of these supply chain problems, particularly in the national security context. We've maybe you guys have heard the Defense Production Act is one of the big laws that's used to do this. Um, and the United States government has utilized that in the past for defense-related goods. The Defense Department puts out this big report every year on its industrial capabilities and how they're using the DPA to plug things. We have other laws that allow for this as well. Um, you never hear about any of that, right? It's all right, the libertarians running Washington, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, uh, the, I think the last thing is that then we need to think about, well, what happened next? So yes, there were empty store shelves in March and April, but just a few months later, uh, the su supply chains, domestic production in new investment, uh, dove into these markets because there was a clear market opportunity to do so. Um, and those store shelves started filling up again. And the same, that's still, that's also the case in terms of pharmaceuticals. That's the case across sectors. Um, and so today, the supply chains look a whole lot different than when our political class was first complaining about them. And yet the rhetoric and the mindset is still stuck in April 2020, as I wrote. Um, and it, that is a really frustrating because to the extent that our, our planners uh, have spotted a problem using, of course, 2020 hindsight um, that existed a year ago, there's a very, very good chance that it doesn't exist today. Um, for example, N95 masks, there's actually a ton of domestic production of N95 masks now. Um, and yet it's still you hear politicians all the time talking about domestic resiliency in, in N95 masks. Um, uh, the and and so so that that situation that existed then doesn't exist today. And oh, by the way, by the time any sort of government supply chain plan gets put into place, the situation that exists today won't exist then in say six months, ten months in the future. And that type of flexibility, that type of adaptation, is just a constant. That's a fact of the market. It's a and it's a great thing. Um, we should not be implementing policies that would slow down that dynamism and that flexibility, whether it's through capital market interventions, supply chain restrictions, you name it. Okay. So the the last issue though is there's a complete disregard. I, okay, maybe not complete, but 99%. Uh, for what are the implications of the interventions that are proposed? And here we have a ton of great history, both recent history and distant history, 
uh, about what happens when the United States decides we're going to have an industrial policy, we're going to have supply chain interventions, buy American policies, all these types of things. And, and here, again, the record is pretty shoddy, that when the United States government tries to, for example, force a industry that they de- deem critical to national security or economic resiliency, uh, the results are quite often pretty, pretty bad. Uh, you know, one example out of many is domestic shipbuilding. You know, we have this law, the Jones Act. Uh, it's been in place 100 years. It's designed, it forces essentially any company that wants to ship goods from, say, Houston to Boston. Um, they have to use a ship that is made in the USA, crewed by Americans, owned by Americans, and flagged in the United States. That raises the costs of shipping. And, oh, by the way, it has uh, it has coincided with a the consistent and long-term degradation of not just the shipbuilding industry, but our merchant marine, so undermining national security. So when the government gets involved in this stuff, the track record isn't really great for creating a thriving industry. And, and oh, by the way, these DPA, these Defense Production Act interventions I mentioned, have we now have some evidence that even these have caused problems more than solutions. Uh, For example, President Trump wanted to be the king of ventilators in March of 2020 because everybody thought ventilators were the thing we needed. Never mind that we actually have a pretty strong medical device industry here. So he forced a bunch of companies through the Defense Production Act or encouraged them through subsidies to make ventilators. Fast forward three months later, doctors realized ventilators aren't actually that great and might actually do harm. Demand for ventilators collapsed. Producers were still making ventilators. And now we have ventilators coming out of our ears. We have a glut of ventilators. We are trying to ship ventilators to countries that don't even want the ventilators. Um, And it's those types of distortions that are a problem. In fact, Sherrod Brown just the other day wrote to President Biden complaining about a glut of domestic manufacturing capacity for PPE in Ohio. And of course, his solution is not to allow those companies to uh, live or die on their own. It's that now he wants a perpetual government program to keep them live um, ad infinitum, you know, perpetually. It's just dumb. Um, But those are the types of distortions we don't mention. We also don't mention the quite uh, apparent graft and cronyism that was associated with some of these Defense Production Act uh, uh, disbursements. Um, millions and millions of dollars going to politically connected industries in shipbuilding and other areas that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Congressional Democrats are investigating those right now. There's, of course, the Kodak uh, debacle where Kodak wanted to become a pharmaceutical company. Peter Navarro thought that was a great idea. Kodak also hired a bunch of lobbyists to get this done. They announced an $800 million loan to Kodak that has since fallen through um, and had a bunch of people in the pharmaceutical industry scratching their head because we actually have domestic production of pharmaceuticals. So uh, none of that is considered, none. It's just, oh, this is a supply chain problem. Oh, we had empty shelves. Let's get government involved, right? And and oh, by the way, Scott's criticism of this is free market fundamentalism. Uh, <laughs> never mind the history and economics I just gave you. It's, it's a little frustrating, as you can tell in my voice. Um, so that leads us to semiconductors, which I think is a fantastic example of everything we just talked about. So for example, we actually make a bunch of semiconductors in the United States. 
Declan threw out that wonderful stat, that 12% number, very, very scary. What Declan did not mention is that actual production of semiconductors in the United States has doubled over the period examined. And I don't mean in terms of value, I mean in actual wafers, the actual chips. We are, we're producing twice as much. Declan also did not mention that 50%, give or take, uh, so about half of all semiconductor purchases from domestic semiconductor companies. We have companies that, like NVIDIA, that don't actually make semiconductors, they just design them. Um, a lot of good jobs there, by the way, but never mind. Um, those uh, ha About half of those uh, semiconductors are still made in the United States. We have a national champion in Intel that has suffered some management problems, a couple setbacks, but is still at or near the bleeding edge of semiconductor production. Um, cap capital expenditures in the United States semiconductor industry have continuously gone up. Research and development spending continuously gone up. This is not a dying industry. It's just a growing global industry. There's growing global consumption. Um, and, by the way, if we did have a reshored supply, the, the, a lot of that semiconductor production was in Austin and it has been shut down. I think it's still shut down, um, exacerbating the very chip shortage that, that we keep hearing about. So reshoring our supply chains is, is not going to fix anything there either. Um, and then finally, we have a long history of trying to subsidize and protect our semiconductor industry. And you can read my paper, I'll just say it did not go well. Um, it resulted in extremely high costs for certain producers, causing the offshoring of our computer industry. It uh, led to all sorts of ridiculous things like the government of Japan, because back then, Japan was the boogeyman. Today, China's the boogeyman. Uh, purchasing semiconductors and dumping them in the Tokyo Bay. They didn't even want them, but they had to purchase them under this dumb agreement we had. they had with the United States. Um, and the creation of a consortium called Sematech that actually um, disbanded, or uh, sorry, it didn't disband, it ended up taking in foreign uh, co uh, competitors because it was producing really nothing of value for its first several, for several years. So again, all of this doesn't say no, um, semiconductors aren't important. It doesn't say no, the Defense Department doesn't need a, a legitimate supply of domestic semiconductor production, which, oh, by the way, doesn't occur in the commercial line. It's actually a totally different line of semiconductor production. And the Defense Department just subsidized a new facility in upstate New York um, to, to make those uh, defense approved chips. Um, none of that is, it's not saying that. It's saying that we need to be really, really skeptical about claims by industry groups and politicians that X is a national security threat that requires massive taxpayer subsidies to a domestic industry that by all objective accounts is still growing and, and doing quite fine. Um, and then the last thing I would note, sorry, I've gone on a long time. I apologize. I, I, you can tell I've, I've written a lot on this. I'm glad I asked um, the question is the Taiwan issue, right? So yeah, um, Taiwan is a very good producer of semiconductors through a company called TSMC. And China is a, that the Chinese invasion threat, I, I would say is a, uh, a real though uh, unlikely one. It's, it's a threat. Um, but two things. One is that our political leaders are not selling domestic semiconductor subsidies on the threat of an invasion of Taiwan. 
They're selling them on the threat of a Chinese industry and on Chinese subsidies to the, their own semiconductor industry. Now, never mind that the Chinese have spent $50 billion on or more on trying to grow a domestic semiconductor industry, and they failed pretty miserably. They're still about a decade behind TSMC and Intel and Samsung. So those subsidies aren't working very well. But second, um, geopolitical risk is a big part of domestic company supply chain management. And I don't know why the federal government feels it needs to subsidize Ford and GM and other companies' own sourcing risk. These companies can, if they want, pay more for domestic-made chips. The capabilities are there. They can go to TSMC and say, hey, we're willing to spend more to have a resilient domestic industry. They don't want that. Instead, what they want is the government to subsidize their geopolitical risk and perhaps socialize some of the corporate mistakes they've made in the past. And that all strikes me as a very bad use of taxpayer funds. And with that, we have our very last question for you. Yeah. So the uh, neoliberal project which I believe is sponsored by the Progressive Policy Institute, has put together a bracket of 64 neoliberal shills. It's like the March Madness bracket, but it's the neoliberal shill bracket. Now, I believe that last year you won this bracket. I did. The whole thing. You were the big, yeah. big winner. You are, you are Duke basketball, I think. And there wasn't um, a Virginia. regular March Madness last uh, I'm, year. I'm so. Virginia. I'm Virginia basketball. <laughs> You know what? I always pick Virginia and it doesn't go well. Um, this year, however, things are looking, I don't know, like you've made it to the Elite Eight. Congratulations on that. How do you think you're going to do this year in the neoliberal shill bracket? I'm going to lose for sure. Um, per, first of all, there's a strong anti-incumbent bias in uh, the, the tournament. Uh, much like how now everybody hates Virginia. I went to UVA twice, by the way. So, so my, my homerism, it, my fandom is legitimate. Um, you know, nobody likes a winner. Um, clearly, I'm a big winner. Uh, and it's a, there's a bunch of just, you know, haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Um, beyond that, some of my competitors are, are, uh, are a bigger deal than I am. Uh, they have more Twitter followers. Uh, Janet Yellen, for example. I mean, how can I go up against Janet Yellen? Um, and by the way, for the readers out there, one of the jokes here is that I am not really a neoliberal. Um, the, the term neoliberal is so ambiguous that it really has grown to encompass a very broad range of people on the right and the left. It generally means kind of people who are free market um, with some with support for some type of social safety net. Um, but of course, look, if, if a libertarian can be in the bracket, then you can see that's a very wide definition. Um, so I'm probably not going to win. In fact, the guy I'm going against now is an absolutely, he's, an, he's a great tax economist. He's also right-leaning. He's done a really fantastic research on wealth taxes and corporate taxes. Um, and he's, he, pro he might beat me. I might not even make it to the final four, which again, it's fine. If you want to go out and vote for me, uh, I would, of course, appreciate your votes. Uh, but hey, vote your conscience, America. And just to be clear, 
you're questioning whether you fit into the category of neoliberal, but chill, you had no problem with no. that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Look, <laughs> a, a, you know, you, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, it's always be shilling. Um, <laughs> I, in fact, uh, people, one of them, for those who follow me on Twitter, you've grown accustomed to how I will literally make any issue about trade and markets. It doesn't matter what, whether it's the chicken sandwich wars, which of course, Sarah, you know a lot about, um, or uh, you know, cheap t-shirts. Um, I it's there's gonna be a, a trade and economic angle in there um, because I am always showing 24-7. And with that folks. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Scott, this was a treat. Even if you're from Dallas, I'm, I'm, I, I actually, go Rangers, oh, uh, go Mavs. Stop. No, cut it, cut the feed. Cut <laughs> yeah, it now. Look, and I won't even get into the Cowboys. We're good. Oh, oh, oh. And my producer also from yeah. Dallas is refusing to cut the feed. You know, <laughs> Mutiny. before we, before Mutiny. we go, I know we've run long, but Houstonians hatred for Dallas is it's well it's justified. sad. Really, it's well sad. justified. We we'll do a whole separate podcast on that. We really works. should. Yeah, get somebody from Austin, and and then we'll really go off. All right, or folks, those make sure or those hippies from Waco. Uh, yeah, we can actually we can agree on some of that. Make sure to subscribe to Capitalism, Scott Lincecum's fabulous newsletter at thedispatch.com. That's Capitalism with an O because he's so clever because he's from Dallas. Thanks. <laughs> See y'all next week. <laughs> Take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.